0: to Revelation chapter 19, and we're looking once again at the glorious return when Christ comes back to the earth. This is the second coming of Christ, and uh, Erica just sang about, about the mighty cross, and Christ came to the cross the first time that he was here, but the second time that Christ comes it's going to be strikingly different from the first. Uh, We're not too far removed from Christmas, which I, I believe is a worthy celebration of Christ's first advent. And we rejoice that God became man because when Christ came into this world, he came to deliver us from our sins. And when Christ came the first time, he came in humiliation and suffering. He came to this earth as a king rejected. He lived here for a short 33 years. And then when he was ready... He surrendered himself to the death of the cross, and there he paid the price of sin for everyone who would believe in him. And what I'm really enjoying is our studies in the Gospel of Matthew because we're looking at how Matthew systematically approaches the subject of proving that Christ is the king. And I think it was in the bulletin article last week. I believe it was last week's article that I remarked about how we're having this convergence of themes in in our three messages, Sunday morning in Matthew, where he's talking about um, establishing Christ as the king and the kingdom that's going to come upon the earth. First John, we're in a couple or three messages that deal with the appearing of Christ. And here once again in our revelation study, of course, the whole thing is mostly about the second coming of Christ. So I enjoy all of that. And before we're finished with Matthew, we'll not only see all the miracles that Christ did and get all the teachings that he gave his disciples, but we'll also see the death of the cross. And as most of you know, you would know, in the book of Matthew, we do come to that part where Christ is crucified. And his death, even though it was a triumph for believers, it was complete rejection by unbelievers, uh, from the unbeliever's standpoint, they, they were victorious. They, they finally accomplished what they have been trying for so many years to do, uh, starting out from when Christ was born and that attempt by Herod to kill him when he was a baby. Going through the rest of his life, there were many attempts to kill him. And each of those attempts were thwarted until the time was just right. And then again, when Jesus was ready to give up his life, he set his face toward Jerusalem. He went there, he entered into the city, and he prepared for the cross. Now, the first advent of Christ was for me and you. He came here to deliver us from our sins, to give us salvation. And he had to come in the humiliation of human flesh in order to do that. And so he appeared the first time, as Hebrew says, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Well, the second advent of Christ is also for us, and the writer of Hebrews adds to that statement that I just quoted in verse 28 of Hebrews 9. He says, "...so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation." And the writer is trying to tell us there that the second time that Christ comes, he's not coming as a sin bearer. When it says he comes without sin, that means he does not come to offer himself for sin, but he comes to bring us salvation. And that salvation that he's talking about is our final deliverance from the sin-cursed world. And so we know that Jesus is coming for us. Uh, The second coming is for believers, but there is also a sense in which the second coming is for unbelievers. They humiliated him the first time that he was here. They turned their backs on him. And when he comes the second time, he will not permit this. And so they'll be forced to give him glory and honor that he deserves. So we look then at these text verses in chapter 19. And the picture here is quite a bit different from the first advent. There is no stable. There is no manger. There are no swaddling clothes of peasants. There's no lowly humility But he comes this time as a mighty warrior and as a conquering king. He's going to establish his kingdom upon the earth and he's going to force his enemies to submit to his rule. So if you look at our text verses here in uh, beginning verse 11 of chapter 19, John says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, this truly is a great text that we've read. We've had 18 chapters and a little bit more preliminaries that lead us up to this. And this is... The revelation of Jesus Christ. I mean, if you want to know what the book is about, when you see the revelation, this is what it's talking about when Christ comes back to establish his kingdom. And so this is when heaven opens, and this is when Christ comes out riding on that white horse. He has his army of angels and of just men that have been made perfect. And Bible history is more concerned about this particular event than it is about anything that ever happened in all the history of the world. Now, we talked about that in the last, last message. We talked about the anticipation of Christ's return. And if we were to measure the importance of Bible doctrines by the numbers of times that you see them in the Scripture, you, you, you'd have to list the Bible's most important topics this way. Number one would be faith. That's the Bible's most important topic, faith. And then closely behind that, number two, is the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it's really amazing how many times that this subject is mentioned in Scripture. There are over 1,500 verses in the Old Testament that speak of it. In the New Testament, one out of every 25 verses relates to it, speaks of it. And by contrast, for every verse that you have that speaks of the first coming of Christ, and, of course, referring to the death of the cross and those Scriptures, for every one that mentions that, you have eight verses that mentioned the second coming of Christ. And so as we're preaching, we put a lot, of, uh, a lot of emphasis on the humiliation of Christ, how he came in the first advent, but the Bible actually puts more emphasis on the exaltation of Christ when he comes in the second advent. Now, I think it's quite interesting that when you look in Scripture, you'll find that when the first council of the church was called, that this subject was one that was mentioned. I want you to turn, if you would, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. And this is the council at Jerusalem. It's the first one that we find in Scripture. And uh, the apostles were all called together to consider a dispute about doctrine. And the beginning of chapter 15 tells us about this. And they were concerned about a very basic fundamental principle of salvation. It was, they were arguing about whether circumcision was necessary for salvation, whether the Gentiles need to be subjected to the laws of Moses and be circumcised. I'm not going to deal with that. You can read uh, this 15th chapter and also the book of Galatians is concerning the very same subject that you have in Acts chapter 15. But I want to call your attention to this, that in the midst of that discussion, there's a reference to the second coming of Christ. Now, the argument is about circumcision. That was being made. And then when uh, when they were talking about that, the apostle James began to speak. And he's the leader of the Jerusalem church. And it says in verse number 13, And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And there, James is talking about Peter going to the house of Cornelius and preaching the gospel to him. And that's how they first came to the conclusion that, that God had included the Gentiles and they were to preach to them. Verse 15, And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, After this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. That the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. And what a statement that is because the apostles well understood this. They knew what Christ would do. He was coming again. He would sit again or he would sit on David's throne. A magnificent temple would be built, one that far outshined in magnificence the temple that Solomon built. And then the kingdom of God would encompass all of the Jews or encompass Jews and Gentiles alike. And then he makes this great statement in verse number 18. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. And there you can put salvation. You can put the cross in there. You can put the resurrection in there. You can put God's people in there. Because Scripture says that he knows his people from the beginning of the world. He knew them. He came to redeem them. And, of course, you put the second coming in here. And so here's another reference. 330 times you'll find this in the New Testament Scriptures. There's references to the second coming of Christ. So there is great anticipation about this event. And perhaps it may be that when Christ came the first time, the people read all the verses that were in Scripture about the exaltation. And what they expected to see when Christ came was a conquering king. And so it didn't figure into their mind that the Messiah would be humiliated. And so they didn't put any emphasis on the humiliation, even though that's also in the Old Testament Scripture. At that time, Israel was more interested in kingdom deliverance rather than the deliverance of their sins. Now, since sin and duff, uh, suffering and death then were, were not a part of the equation of the Messiah in their minds, then, and, and kings are not born in stables, and kings are not laid in mangers, and kings are not wrapped in gunny sacks, then they thought that Jesus didn't fit the description. But the first work of Christ when he came was necessary in order that the second time that he came would have the fullest meaning. Christ is not going to rule in a world that's in the throes of sin. He is not going to peacefully coexist with sinful men and not with demons, not with the devil. He won't coexist with anything that defiles God's holiness. And so the salvation of the cross was necessary that we might be delivered from this vile nature of sin that we have and, and God's justice would be satisfied in giving a penalty for sin. And for those who believe in Christ... All of our sins were paid for at the cross. And there is where Jesus satisfied the judgment for believers. And that's why we have the first advent. He came to judge our sins in that first advent when he went to the cross. He took our sins upon him. And so we're not going to be judged for sin. So you have the suffering of the cross, and you have that suffering where he endured hell there. And that shows us the unfathomable love of God. And you don't want to miss that because sometimes when we look at this subject, we're caught up in the war and the bloodshed of this and the carnage and the vengeance and all of these things that are going on, they're spoken of in the Scripture, that surround the second coming of Christ. And we really don't think very much about Christ's love. Many of the passages that we read last week concern the retributive justice of God. There is God judging lost people, judging men because of their rejection of Christ. Men treated Christ shamefully. They persecuted his people. And so God responds to that by exposing their deep shame. And so he brings all of their sins to light, and in a swift act of justice, he cuts them down to the ground. And as it says here, he treads them out, treads out their blood in the winepress of his wrath. And it's very hard for us to fit God's love in there. For many people it is, but God's love is there. You see, God's love is there because he gave us a book that explained all of this. He gave us fair warning of what was going to happen. And if we ignore what God says, we do so at our own peril. And then also God's love is shown here before, because he comes for his people. And he's ridding the world of sin and he creates the world a world where there is no sickness, there is no sadness, there is no pain, there is no suffering, there is no fear of any enemy. And some would only think about how cruel that God is in his judgment of men But those who are redeemed think of God in this way, how loving and righteous and caring that he is, that he takes all of that away from us so that he's sure that we live in perfect peace and righteousness. Now that is the anticipation of the second coming. Christ is coming to rid the world of sin and sinners and Satan. He can't peacefully coexist with any of that, and neither can we. So we're talking here then about paradise regained. Paradise is lost on the other side, but Christ has come to regain paradise for us. So one was the curse, and the second is the correction. So that's the anticipation of it. Hundreds of verses in Scripture refer to it. It's the expectation of the blessed, righteous kingdom of Christ upon the earth. And to enable it, Christ had to come and suffer and die. And then to finally accomplish it, the king must come with vengeance, and as Scripture says, he shall reign forever. Forever and ever. Now, I want to move on. And and tonight, I want to talk to you about uh, the second feature of this, which is the appearance of Christ. The appearance of Christ. And by appearance, I don't mean what he wears. Uh, We're going to get to that a little bit later. Uh, This scripture does describe some of the clothing, and we're going to get to that. But the appearance that I'm speaking of here is how he comes, and where does he appear, and when does he appear. Verse number 11 says, Heaven Opened, Heaven opened. And that wasn't to accommodate John or us so that we can look into heaven and see what's going on there, but heaven opened so that Christ comes out. Christ comes out with his army, and heaven is peeled back in order to reveal the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me make two observations about this. And this first one I've mentioned to you many, many times before and we really do need to understand what Scripture is talking about in this particular part of Christ's coming because this is the second phase. It's the second phase of His coming. So we're not talking about the rapture in this Scripture. I want you to go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if you would. And uh, there are other Scriptures that we can find on the rapture. Uh, but unfortunately, maybe, there are far fewer Scriptures on the rapture than there are on what we're talking about tonight. We're talking about the second phase. And that's discur- discussed more than the first phase of his coming. So the rapture, that's in the first phase. In First Thessalonians 4, we have this classic passage on the rapture. Now, here, uh, this is a scripture that I read last week uh, in, our, in our Sunday morning scripture reading time. And I had the privilege of reading the same scripture not long ago at the um, graveside of Brother Grant Evans when we put his body into the ground. And uh, here we have the story of the rapture and we have terminology of the rapture in this scripture 1st Thessalonians 4 verse 13 but i would not have you to be ignorant brethren concerning them which are asleep that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope for if we believe that jesus died and rose again Even so, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. And that word prevent means precede, will not precede them that are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So here, uh, Paul is talking about the first phase. And, And we find nothing here where it says that Christ comes to the earth at this particular time. We're caught up to meet Christ. We go up to meet him. We meet him in the air, and we meet him in the air because he doesn't come down to the earth. And by the way, if you look there at verse number 17, when you see those words caught up, the Latin version actually reads there rapturo, and that's where we get the word rapture. Someone asked me not long ago uh, to find the rapture in the Bible because they couldn't find anything about it. And so I just took them to this scripture. Uh, You're not going to find the word rapture in the English version, but you do find it in the Latin, and it's here in the word caught up. So there's a great difference here in the first phase and the second. Uh, We've seen all these horrible judgments that accompany the second coming, uh, the second advent of uh, that that second phase of it. And and the precursor for that was a scene that we saw in heaven in Revelation chapter 5. And there God was on the throne. He had a scroll in his hand that was sealed with seven seals. And if you remember, John wept because he thought that there was no one who was worthy to open that book. To, to reveal what it said, to execute it, and then to deliver the world. But then he was told not to weep, because there was one who was worthy, and that was the Lion of the tribe of Judah. It was the Lord Jesus Christ, and the book was given to him. And one by one, he began to open those seals. In chapter 6, there are six seals that are opened, and as each one is opened, there's a judgment that pours out. And then the seventh seal, that's open, and things are worse than they were before. And the opening of those seals comes after the rapture. That, this is the judgment of wicked men that are upon the earth, and it comes after the rapture. And, and that time period after the rapture is called the great and terrible day of the Lord. And the prophet Joel wrote in Joel chapter 2, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Now, the first phase of Christ's coming is not going to be like this. There is, no, there is no terror in that. Christians are not told to dread the coming of the Lord because of all these things that are going to happen. We're not going to be subject to any of that. We, we won't be subject to God's judgment upon lost men that are on the earth. And if we had to go through all of that, then who among us would take comfort that Christ is coming? I think everybody here would say, no, 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 wait just a little bit longer, Jesus. Let us die first. Take us to heaven that way because we don't want you to come back and then have to go through this terrible time of tribulation. So we don't want to be caught in the tribulation. We want to be caught up, caught away from all of that. And that's what God's going to do. And so the Bible never teaches that Christians should dread Christ's coming. Instead, this first phase of Christ's coming, we gloriously anticipate, anticipate this. We long for it, and we hope for it. And it's what's called the blessed hope in Scripture. And in First Thessalonians 4, this is what Paul is speaking of, and he says, and, and he ends that section by saying, "You don't sorrow at death, you don't sorrow as those that have no hope." And he wrote about Christ finish, Christ in finishing the section with, "Wherefore, comfort one another with these words." You know that Christ is coming. As a Christian, you know that he's coming back for you. So comfort one another with these words. Don't dread this. Well, we switch to the second phase of Christ's coming, and now we find that the world is in dreadful fear. The first phase has no warning. You can't figure out when it's going to come. Uh, You don't don't know when that's going to happen, no matter how many convoluted schemes that Harold Camping comes up with you're not going to be be able to figure out when Christ is coming. But this second phase, when Christ comes this time, then there's going to be a great indication of when it's going to happen. There'll be seven years of tribulation that precede it. That comes after the rapture. That's the tribulation period. And you'll have all of these great signs that'll tell you that Christ is coming again in the second phase. You'll have the opening of all the seven seals. For example, when the sixth seal is open, there's a great earthquake. The sun is darkened, the moon becomes as blood, meteors fall upon the earth. And Scripture says the people have to hide in caves and in the mountains to protect themselves from it. And then that seventh seal is open, and the seven trumpet judgments come, and trees are burned up, and the seas become as blood. All sea creatures die, the water is poisoned, demons are released from the abyss, and they torment men upon the earth. Now, when Harold sees all of that... Then he can start estimating and putting his charts together and figuring out when Christ is coming in the second phase. And he'll be fairly accurate if he does it. So if he's around and you're around, pay attention to him this time because he's going to be pretty close to when Christ is coming in the second phase. Now, when he comes this second, in that second phase, it will not be in the air only. Heaven opens and he charges out. He'll have his army with him. And he'll herd all of the armies of the Antichrist into the valley of Megiddo, and he'll destroy them there with the word of his mouth. And then he's going to set his feet upon the Mount of Olives. There'll be an earthquake that divides that mountain in two and creates a great valley. And from there, Jesus is going to rule the world with a rod of iron. And that day is to be dreaded. Lost people are not told to look forward to this. They're told to dread it. He comes with judgment because of their sins, and he's going to divide the lost people from his people, and all unbelievers will then be cast into the lake of fire. So the second phase of Christ's coming is far different from the first phase. God's people anticipate it because he brings the righteous kingdom of God upon the earth. We don't dread it, but lost people... You need to, I don't know if you're here lost tonight, but if you're around at that time, you need to dread it because it spells doom for you. We're expecting the perfect rule of Christ upon the earth. We'll be happy about that, but lost people won't. Now, also concerning this phase, it is the sudden phase of his coming. And here I'm not comparing it to the rapture and the imminent return of Christ. The first phase is also going to be sudden, uh, sudden in the sense that it comes at an unexpected time, I said, you're not going to be able to figure out when it happens. And it comes all at once. And people that have not trusted Christ, they'll be unprepared for it. And then they'll be thrust into this terrible time of tribulation. And that's why we encourage people to receive Christ right now. Because when the rapture comes, it will be sudden. And when that trumpet sounds, people are not going to be able to say, well, you know, I hear the trumpet. I hear it blowing. Christ must be coming, so I'll believe in him right now. And I'll be able to go up and be in heaven with Christ. There's no time to do that. Decisions have to be made before this happens. The Bible describes it as happening in the twinkling of an eye. And that means it is so fast, there's no time to make any kind of decision. So if a person hasn't trusted Christ when he comes back, then he's going to go into that tribulation period. Now, secondly, the Scripture says it happens in the twinkling of an eye, as I've just said, faster than a blink. No decisions can be made. It's a sudden phase. But that's not the sudden phase that I'm talking about right now. I'm speaking here of the heavens being rolled back, and then Christ's kingdom comes immediately. Now, the seven years of tribulation, that's a defined period of time. Christ comes in the first phase and then sets off the tribulation. Seven years are going to click by. But then when he appears, what we're reading here in Revelation 19, verse 11, when he appears there, the kingdom of God will be immediate. It'll happen fast. Now Christ comes to do battle, uh, and he engages his enemies, and there is immediate victory over them. Now, when we were in Israel, uh, one of the most impressive and interesting places that we went to was Masada. I have uh, many pictures of this, and I can't show all of them to you tonight. But while I'm talking about this, Dalton, if you just kind of run through the pictures, I'm not going to stop. You can just run through them and show some of this. But Masada is this... Fortress that was built by Herod on the top of a mountain, right close to the Dead Sea. There is a commanding view from there of all the surrounding territories. You can see the Dead Sea very well from there. On one side you have cliffs that are 1,300 feet high. On the other side you have cliffs that are 300 feet high, and it made a a fortress that's nearly impregnable. Well, at the t- at the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., there was a group of Jewish people that went into Masada and holed up there and, and uh, they, were, they were, had defied Rome, the Roman armies, and the Roman army was sent to try to get those people out of Masada. Now some of them came uh, before the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 and so they were up there for about seven years before the Roman army could actually get them out. And so, as I said, on one side, you have cliffs that are 1,300 feet high. That's practically, well, impossible. You can't get an army up that side. On the other side, you have the cliffs that are 300 feet high, and that looks to be just about equally impossible, that you could scale 300-foot cliffs and get up there to get into Masada. So what the Romans did, they built a huge ramp. I mean it's incredible. You can still see parts of this ramp today and it stretches out there into the valley on the three hundred foot side and they built this huge ramp all the way up there to roll up their battering rams so they could come up there and break through the wall of Masada. And the famous story about this is is that when they broke through those walls, they found that the nine hundred and sixty people that were inhabitants of Masada had all committed suicide. So they had a mass suicide. Everybody in the whole place was dead. And, of course, they didn't want the Romans to take them over. So they finally did breach the walls. Well, you can read about things like that in history. And, and, and uh, there's lots of battles where there have been long, long sieges. If you've read a little bit about world history, you know that in the Middle Ages there was a war that lasted for 100 years in France. So you have these long wars. Some of you may be experienced, I'm sure you are, with uh, that you're as old as I am, you know how long it took for the United States to get out of Vietnam. And we've been at war in Afghanistan and Iraq off and on for nearly 20 years now. And so these kinds of things go on around the world, and you have these long, long sieges and long wars that take place. But the second coming of Christ is not going to be like that. There won't be any long sieges because when Christ comes, it's over in a flash. There's no heavy ground fighting. There aren't any missile attacks. There are no F-18 flyovers. God doesn't need tanks and RPGs and all of that. Because when he comes, he speaks, and then it's over. Now, why is that important to us? I mean, why are we talking about this right now? Well, it's because the language of the Bible always speaks of suddenness. Christ's kingdom is not going to come upon the earth in a long, drawn-out process. It's not like many people believe today that what will happen is that we have a slow, long, ongoing transition into the great kingdom of God that comes upon the earth. Now, some people think that the kingdom of God is going to be built and built and built and built, a little added on here, a little bit added on there, and then finally after who knows how long, the, the kingdom of God and the and, and the. And the gospel of Jesus Christ overcomes everything, and God takes over the world, and then Christ becomes the king. I don't see anything like that in Scripture. And as much as I like to uh, read R.C. Sproul and Table Talk, and I do respect him, and I like reading that every day, I'm blessed by it. But I'll tell you, when you read these kinds of things in that in that little magazine, he's wrong. Now, the post-millenaries believe that the kingdom of God will slowly come. And so they believe that the church is going to grow and grow and grow, and then over a long period of time, Christianity will finally take over the world. And that was a thought that was very popular in the late 19th century and into the early 20th century. You have a group of men that are called the Princeton theologians, and they were great men. Uh, They were very learned men. But they were living in the time of the Industrial Revolution. And if you know the history of that, then you know that people thought that the world was actually getting better. Technology was starting to advance, and, and uh, the, the world wasn't as hard of a place to live in at that time. And so the Princeton theologians were, were really strong proponents of this post-millenary doctrine that the world is going to keep getting better and better until the gospel eventually takes over the world. But then there was something that happened that kind of threw a monkey wrench into things, and it was this little bitty thing called World War I. And then not long after that, World War II came. And then the Korean War. And then the Cold War. And then you have the gospel being rejected worldwide because communism doesn't allow the gospel to be preached anymore. And so suddenly, the post went out of vogue. They're not popular anymore because it doesn't look like the world is going to get any better. So now, uh, for a time there, the post were very hard to find. But now, that system of thinking has been revived. And they're, they're teaching this again. Now, I'm not sure that you could link these two things together, but you take the fall of the Berlin Wall in uh, the late, late 18, 1980s, early 1900s. You have the fall of the Berlin Wall. Then you have this modicum of democracy that comes to Russia. And now they've allowed the gospel to come into Russia. And there are many missionaries that are there and many people that are being won to the Lord. And when that started happening, it, it gave the post mills hope again. Well, maybe we were right after all. But I don't think so. I I think that what we should be able to do is just read the Bible literally and end all the speculation with it. I cannot find a gradual kingdom. This looks to me, as we read it here, that it's going to be sudden. Heaven opens, here comes Christ, he comes with his army, then zap, it's all over. He begins to rule with his rod of iron. Now, it's hard then to get a picture of a gradual kingdom I mean, have you ever heard anybody talk like this, that the gospel is going to rule the world with a rod of iron? Nobody talks like that. Uh, We don't think about the church taking over the world and ruling with a rod of iron. And Christians don't have a mandate to take over the world in that way. That's what the Bible teaches, at least. But you had Roman Catholics and Protestants who did think that they had a mandate to rule the world this way. And that's why we had our earlier studies about how they persecuted people and how you have the Inquisition and the, and the uh, 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 Middle Ages, you have all of that going on. And why did they do that? Because they thought that they had the right to enforce that upon people, to rule them with a rod of iron. Same thing happened in the United States in the formation of this country. I mentioned to you before that in the Westminster Confession of Faith that came from England, uh, well, uh, to actually... came from England and and, uh, Holland and those places, that the Westminster Confession of Faith, when it was originally written, contained a section that gave the church the right to enforce religious capitulation. In other words, even in the Westminster Confession, it gave them the right to to persecute people in order to bring them to the faith. Well, Baptists very soundly rejected that. And so in this country, in the formation of it, uh, we rejected that, and Baptists were very instrumental... In bringing religious freedom to America, and why did we do that? It's because we didn't believe that we could bring the kingdom of God into the world by force. That's not the work of the church to do that. And so the church is not going to bring, uh, is not going to conquer the world with the gospel and rule it with a rod of iron. But that's what it says Christ is going to do. And so what happens is that Christ raptures the church out of the world. They're 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 gone. And then when Christ appears, he brings us back with him. Now, again, when you read, if some of you read table talk and you read uh, some of the things that are commented on there, the church is not going to bring in the kingdom, at least not in the sense that R.C. Sprouls thinks. But the church will have a part in it. But it's when Christ comes back, and we've already been uh, taken out of the world. We've already been, been, been in heaven. And then we come back with Jesus Christ, and he's the one that conquers the entire world. Well, you have another group of people that think, well, no, it's not exactly going to come that way, but we have the power to pray Satan out of the world. Now, I I don't know how people get my email address, but I get emails about this all the time. Somebody religiously, uh, sometimes it comes from leaders in the community, um, and and most notably it will come from the charismatic people, that they'll ask me to join in their prayers to bind Satan so Christ's kingdom can come. And I've got news for them. I can't bind Satan, and they can't bind Satan. And you can pray all that you want, and Satan is not going to be bound until Jesus Christ comes back to this earth. And then he's going to bind him himself. So I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to pray for Satan to be bound so Christ's kingdom can advance. Christ advances his kingdom as he chooses to do, and Satan has nothing to do with it. Satan can't overcome the Lord. W.A. Criswell states it this way, or stated it this way. He's dead now. Uh, The mighty conflict described here in chapter 19 of the Revelation is one that has been foretold all through the Bible. The book of Revelation is the unveiling, the presentation of Jesus Christ at the consummation of the age. And prophecy in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, without exception, says that the end of the world comes in a vast, mighty, indescribable conflict. World history ends in war and desolation. And Chris Well is exactly right about it. It's not a gradual kingdom that comes and we just kind of sweetly march on into the kingdom. The only way it's going to come is with indescribable conflict. And that's what this portion of Revelation is telling us. So nothing that we have in Scripture indicates otherwise. Old and New Testaments agree about this. Christ comes suddenly. It's not a long, drawn-out, imperceptible change that's going to happen. It's not going to happen by the church gradually winning people to Christ. That's not how his kingdom comes. It comes in an immediate sense when heaven opens and Christ comes riding on that white horse. So this is the appearance. Heaven opens and the King of kings and the Lord of lords brings in his kingdom. And that's blessed hope for every Christian. Folks, it is devastating hell for every unbeliever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that you've given us tonight to look into your word. I ask you, Lord, that as Christians that we would live in the hope of Christ's return. We're looking for you to come. And we know we're going to be taken out of of this world so we don't have to go through tribulation or anything like that. And then we will return with you to conquer the world, to see you win the battle there, and to rid this world of Satan and sin and sinners. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here tonight that's lost, that hasn't received you as Savior, that they would understand this, and they would understand that today is the day of salvation. Now is the time to receive Christ as Savior. Bless as we sing tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.